0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: We thank you, Father, that you have given us access into your presence. Christ has gone and like an anchor holds firm there. We cannot be cut off from it. That's a great gift you've given us, and we say thank you for that. Thank you for hope. Thank you for hope in Christ. And I ask now, Lord, that you would grow us individually here and as a body here Grow us to be people who hope with greater resolve, who hope in you and in your agenda for our lives, in your leadership, in your fatherhood, Lord, over us, and therefore are willing to let go of our own plans, our own objectives, our own timing, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, help us to grow in trust of you because that's what we need if we're going to pursue you. To believe that you are good, to believe that you are for us, to believe that your way is right and good for us. Lord, take the passage that's before us this morning. Where necessary, convict. Give us, Lord, I pray, insight to see where it is necessary. Give us grace to to receive your conviction, if it would come, to receive it in the right way. In a humble way, but with an eye looking forward to a cross that has anchored us in your presence, a place of hope forever. Lord, it's, it's tricky sometimes for us to, to receive correction and, and rebuke. As you said, the scriptures provide for us. It's tricky for us to receive that sometimes and also then to receive hope and, and joy from it. So help us to balance that out this morning, Lord. I'm asking you to commission your spirit to do a, a wise and sensitive good work among us. Cause us to be a people conformed to you and submitted to you. And use this text towards that end I pray, Father. Christ would be honored in our midst here that we would be grown. We need it. We ask you for it. We trust you to bring it. Christ would be honored in our midst. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and as we've been working through chapters 2 and 3 of this book, we have seen repeatedly God's frequent displeasure with the man Eli, who is high priest over Israel at the time. Eli and his household, his two sons in particular, repeatedly God has shown us his displeasure with these folks as they walk in what he calls very great sin, dishonoring the Lord, abusing the people of God. And so several times God has pronounced and told us, the readers, of his judgment on Eli's wicked house. He's going to tear down the house, kill the sons, both of them on the same day. We've read that so far. It came up again last week in chapter 3, as the Lord called the young man Samuel to be his prophet. He called this man, this young man, probably a teenager, maybe in his early 20s, he called him out to be a prophet, to replace the blind priest and to speak forth the Word of God, to speak forth light and truth from God so the people would receive God's Word. And this is, this is a tremendous act of grace. If you think about what God's word is, it is God telling us the truth about who he is and what his world is and what his values are, God telling us the truth. And it's an act of grace because if God were to remain silent, as we said last week, we are not left in silence. If God goes silent, we are left with a host of other voices talking to us, none of which speak the truth. We are left with an, a deep and dark enemy of our souls, Satan himself, whispering to us, raising for us subtly the foundational question that he asked of Eve at the very beginning, who is God really? And what is God like towards you really? Really? trying to answer for us. He is your rival and he means you evil. You should avoid him, contend against him, fight for yourself, seek your own. That's what he's whispering to us all the time. And so is the fallen world that has unwittingly been taken captive by him to do his will, that is, to whisper. And it is not sufficiently countered by our own fallen hearts that themselves are deceived and therefore deceive. If God were to be silent, we'd be left in trouble. But he has spoken, raised up a prophet to speak his word to us, and that is a great gift. And the first message that he gives that prophet is that he is one of the doom of Eli's house and of an event that's going to make all the ears of Israel tingle when they hear it. Alarmed and shocked and afraid. He says there's an alarming event coming. what is that Well we find out today in chapter four God's going to do something that is wholly i mean completely unexpected and is alarming and frightening and is for the good of his people so we're going to look at that today in 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 to 11. Let me read it, and then I'll walk us through to be sure we understand it before making a couple of observations. This is 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, They said, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. First Samuel 4. This is an interesting passage. And it's hard for us reading it these years on to read it with the punch that this event would have caused. The last couple sentences of this Israel defeated, the ark captured, the sons of the priests dead. Three tremendous, shocking blows. We're getting ahead of ourselves. The passage begins innocently enough with just a word about Samuel chapter 3 concluded, he has been established as a prophet throughout all of Israel, and everybody knows it, and his word goes through all of the land. It says, at the beginning, the word of Samuel came to all Israel, which is good and fine, except that now Samuel disappears from the scene entirely. He'll reappear in chapter 7 at another battle, at another Ebenezer, but for the moment, he's gone, and the main character becomes the ark. And the Philistines arrive in the land, and Israel goes out to war. Now, the Philistines at this time, in the period of the Judges, the Philistines were great trouble for Israel. They, they had occupied an area along the coastline, along the Mediterranean Sea. And from time to time, they would they would venture inland against where Israel was. And this particular site is 20 miles or so to the west, towards the Mediterranean Sea, to the west of Shiloh. So this is close to the Mediterranean. And maybe the Philistines had sent the military venture inland. We don't know what happened, but they come to these, these two camps in Aphek and at Ebenezer, and there's a battle. And the first skirmish on day one, verse two, says that Israel lost 4,000 men. And literally the text reads, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, leaving open the question, by whom? That will be answered in a moment. Israel's defeated, and apparently this is a surprise because when the elders gather that night back at camp, the elders, not Samuel the prophet, he's nowhere to be found, the elders ask, what happened? They ask a very appropriate question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They know he's the one who did it. This is how God's providence always works. God accomplishes his purposes through the means of secondary agents, in this case, Philistines carrying spears and swords. But they know God did it, and they're, they're asking, at least for a moment, why? Unfortunately, they don't wonder long enough. They just decide to fix the problem by going and getting. The verb is taking. They decide, we will take unto ourselves the ark from Shiloh. We'll bring him here, or bring it here, it could be. Either way, they're making the same point. That this ark, that the God of this ark will bring him over here, will gather him to ourselves, that he may deliver us from the power of our enemies. What makes them think this? Their past experience. This ark, most of us know, I suppose, but maybe some don't, the, the ark is a box. It's about three and a half feet long, two feet wide or so. It's a box made out of wood, completely covered in gold, with a couple of angels called cherubs, cherubim, plural, on the top of it, arched towards each other with their wings touching at the top. It's several feet by several feet. It's a box, and it's highly symbolic. This box, when God gave Moses the instructions about how to build it, he said that when it's all said and done, there at the top where the angels come together at their wings, that God said he would He would manifest himself. He present himself there in a very unique way because what the whole thing is trying to show is an earthly model of heaven. All of the sanctuary with its courts and its inner room and the the central room where this ark is kept with God represented right there, it's representing God amongst the angels in heaven, separated from people. It's highly symbolic. Kept away from all the people all year long, except on the one day of the year that the high priest brought in the great sacrifice and put the blood of the sacrifice on this ark before God it's a very special piece of furniture and most of the time it is kept completely separate from the people except of course when Israel wandered 40 years through the wilderness then it was carried on poles by the priests and this ark because it represented the presence of God had power Recall some of the events of the wilderness wandering. When Israel crossed over the flooded Jordan River, how did they do that? The priests carried the ark into the water, and as soon as their foot hit the water, the river piled up behind. Clearly demonstrating this ark has power. The God of this ark has power. They walk in, and they stand there in the middle of the river on dry ground with the river that way and nothing that way and every single Israelite files by the ark what did this? the God of this ark then shortly later Jericho falls and what figures prominently in that? the priests carrying the ark around the city time and again there's power in the ark we have a problem with the Philistines I know, let's go fetch the ark Somebody might have asked, has anybody talked to God about this? And as a tumbleweed goes across the stage, no. Which is all the more striking if you contrast it with what we saw in the book of Judges. Do you recall Judges, the end of Judges, when all the, re, the, the crazy, the what-on-earth stuff is going on at the end of Judges? As Israel's making war against Benjamin, and they're, they're gathering armies, and do you remember How several times, even in that setting, Israel stopped and asked of the Lord, What should we do? Asked of the Lord, Who should go first in battle when they lost? Asked of the Lord, Should we do that again when they lost again? Asked of Him again, Should we do that a third time? They know to ask. And they know that God responds. And they know there is a prophet in the land through whom God is speaking. Never mind, I have an idea. Let's go take the ark unto unto us and let him defeat our enemies. So they go and they get it, and they bring it, and what do you know, it's carried by Hophni and Phinehas. Funny how that worked out. Sons of the priests, they carry the ark, of course, and so they bring it. And when the ark arrives, Israel gives a great shout because their omnipotent reinforcement, the reinforcement, has arrived and victory is ensured. This one sits enthroned on the cherubim on high. He is the Lord of the hosts of heaven and in covenant with us. The ark is mentioned six times, four of them with the word covenant, emphasizing covenant. He's cut a deal with us. He has to defend us. He commands the armies of heaven. He reigns from on high. Tomorrow's going to be a good day. And they shout in victory, and the Philistines are afraid till they figure out, and, and to, are puzzled till they figure out, and then they're afraid because they've heard of this. Now, as you read through there, obviously they've got some of the details wrong. They, they view it as, as multiple gods. They have the Egyptians in the wilderness. They, they're confused about the details, but they've heard the basic story. This God is strong. And they're in trouble. So be men and fight, Philistines. And so they fight, and shockingly, Israel was defeated. This is the first punch. <clears throat> what? Did I read that right? Defeated. And not just defeated, crushed. 30,000 dead and the army so shattered that it, it disintegrates everybody goes home there is no army left anymore and the ark that was taken by Israel to be with them is now taken by the Philistines to be with them same word the ark is captured oh and guess who dies Hophni and Phineas. what do you know that's the passage. We'll read ahead. The next passage shows how this struck Israel when they heard of it. We can read that, and, and we will never get the impact of it. To make the ears tingle, to, to burn, to be shocked and afraid and alarmed all at once. Two battles, the unexpected results, a surprising loss, and then a shocking, game-changing disaster. The ark is gone and the Philistines took it. How did that happen? The Lord of hosts the a POW. Well, the reason is tied up with the main point of this passage. And let me express the main point and then we're going to have to work towards it because it might not make perfect sense at first, but... Here's the main point that I'm working towards this morning. God will work to turn His people from trying to make Him useful. God will work to turn His people, turn them away from, trying to make Him useful. I've got two parts to that. The, the bit about making him useful and the bit about God working. I'm going to start with the useful piece. Here's my first point. Beneath that, I've got two points. The first one, the Lord will not cooperate when people try to use him. That's how I'm using useful. In a sense of, if I'm doing something, I find useful. The tools and the resources and the helpers that I gather to help me accomplish my purpose. If, if, if I'm putting together a cabinet, perhaps a hammer, perhaps a drill, perhaps a screwdriver, all of those might be useful. Water might not be useful. I'm looking for things that are useful to help me accomplish my end. And, and God resists that. He will not cooperate when people try to use Him. There are two varieties of that behavior in this passage. First, Phineas Hoffney. We've seen it now for several chapters, as they they have organized and they have lived now for decades a life that is centered around them meeting their own needs, pursuing their own agenda. They eat the best meat, they have access to the women at the at the tabernacle. They enjoy, they use the power and the prestige from their position, and they love God because he's the reason that there's good meat, women, and power. They carry on a ministry as priests to serve self. And their story is coming to an end here. As he has told us now for several chapters, it now happens. But obviously the, the main focus of here is Israel's military venture, Israel's decided what it wants and it hatches a plan as to how to get it and God will be the means to their end. Military victory. They never ask Him what they should do. They never ask the prophet. They never consult God. They just summon Him. They take Him to themselves to accomplish their own goal. There is a very subtle power play at work here. It's the same kind of power play that's going on when kids ask their parents, Dad, can I have some money for some ice cream? And there are five other kids standing right there with money for ice cream. And there's another dad right there in the act of opening his wallet to give his kids money for ice cream. Dad, can I have some money for ice cream? If you say no, you at least look like a heel and probably come off as mean. got dad over a barrel kids do that sometimes on purpose sometimes unintentionally but i figured out a way that i can get from god what i actually but from my dad what i actually want that's the kind of thing going on here with god and the israelites his reputation is on the line when they bring him to the battlefield here's a god Who has untold power, who is the Lord of hosts, who is in covenant with these people, who is the one who is their protector and defender. What will will people say if he loses? What will the nation say? What will will his own people say? They will say that he is not a promise-keeping God or that he was too weak, one of the two. Either way, his reputation is at stake. So surely he will fight for us and win. That is a very subtle, very manipulative, very controlling approach to God. And it is not just Israelite. It is human. This is where we all come onto the map. It is human. I read a book recently by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried. and It's a very good book. There's one line in there that says, We people, we humans, <laughs> think about this. We consistently prefer to be fed and not fathered. We consistently prefer to be fed and so we look for whatever or whomever will satisfy my appetite and turn away from one who will say no. Turn away from one who who may seek to shape me, to grow me according to his agenda on his timetable and turn towards and pursue anything or attempt to turn Others, like the Lord, turn them into resources that will feed me. That has been the case since page 2 of the Bible. When our enemy sidled up to Eve and began to whisper into her ear the question, Who is God and what is He towards you? Do you remember the path along which that question traveled? The context for that question? Fruit that was good to eat and pleasing to the eye and desirable for knowledge. He points that out to her and says, Look at that. It is good. It is desirable. It'll feed you, satisfy you, taste good. Don't you want it? And he won't give it to you. What does that tell you about him? What does that tell you about this God? Don't you? Shouldn't you? Isn't it appropriate for you to seek to be fed? To seek to have your desires met? And if He won't do it, tell Him to shove off and pursue it yourself. And since that moment, since that moment that she and then Adam after her chose to follow the path of satisfying the desire of the heart and not listening to and following God. Since that moment, we have all been enslaved. Before our salvation, actually bound, and since then, wrapped up in a deeply cut habit. What do we do? We look at all of life looking for what is desirable, what tastes good, what will satisfy, what will give to us, and we orient our whole life in pursuit of those things and look for useful stuff to help us get there. We dethrone God in the process. And we have little room for being fathered We want to be fed. This is human. Very carefully, I have to point out, and I'll mention a few things here in a moment, I have to point out that often the things that we seek to be fed with are themselves okay. The problem is in the subjecting of God. The elevating of myself and my agenda and the subjecting of God to be the meter of my agenda. That's what Israel's doing here. That's what we by nature slip into, tragically slip into. Do you realize the enslavement of that? To live life in pursuit of the satisfaction of my desires leaves me only every day still chasing and cut off from the one who is actually life. It is a tragedy. It is all laid into us in a subtle whisper from the very beginning and then every day thereafter laid into us by an enemy who wants to destroy you telling you feed yourself and anyone who says no to you in the moment of your demand in the way you want it is to be avoided and God will not cooperate he won't cooperate with that which leaves us on one hand eager to avoid him but think for a second why won't he cooperate with that because it's your death that he would be cooperating with. Not just his dishonor, your death. To doom you to chase after satisfying yourself in this world will be your death. He will not cooperate. Out of good, he won't cooperate. So do you see this in your life? ask some questions to help you look for it because it is it is there it is it is it is in your life it is human an orientation towards all of your living that has relegated God to be a helper to you rather than a father over you oftentimes look for it here I, I just plead with you God has to God has to show this to you and I, I pray he does show it to you I'll ask some questions, maybe it'll help you look. Oftentimes this shows up in moments of disappointment or frustration or anger or sadness. Because in those moments you find out what you really wanted and didn't get and therefore are angry, sad, disappointed. Jeb's Jed often says, it's identified by the word just. I find that to be really helpful. Do you just want God to remove the illness? Do you just want a job? Do you just want some friends? Understand what I'm doing with that. When I ask those things, what I'm trying to do is perhaps for you it might provide an opening for you to say, oh, and I don't have that, and I'm frustrated by it, which shows you that's what you're chasing and you're frustrated that God hasn't given it to you. You're using Him to be useful and He's not cooperating. Do you find... You just want your family members to be changed. You just want that thorn removed out of your side, whatever it is. You just want a little peace and quiet. Just want a little stability. Do you find any of those things in your life? Let me change approaches. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be holy? Because it pleases and honors God. Or do you want to be holy because God blesses holy people? And I've got a business that needs to be blessed. A family that needs to be blessed. Do you see the difference? One wants holiness for God's sake. One wants holiness for my sake. It's subtle. It's in you. Somewhere, look. Do you just want something? Do you find yourself... I looked at myself asking this question recently and I found myself able to notice... I pray more at certain times than at others. And then I noticed the things that I'm praying for are things that would affect how I look. Why am I praying? I want God to help me look good. Hmm. It's very subtle. I plead with you, ask. Lurking behind every angry, sullen, critical attitude is a frustrated heart that has not been able to coerce God to help you in the way that you want. So are you angry? Are you frustrated? Have you just given up? I knew a guy one time. I knew a man who lived, who was living at the time like a wet noodle. Just nothing going on. And as I probed that and asked why. He said, Life just hasn't worked out like I thought it would. You hear the word? Life just hasn't worked out like I thought it would. Essentially, So I quit. This guy was a Christian. God hasn't done what I thought he would do. And I spent a number of years, as the story goes on, I spent a number of years trying to get it right, trying to study my Bible the right way, trying to pray the right way, trying to serve the right way, trying to give enough money. And he wouldn't cooperate. It never happened. I I, I gave up. Give up. A tremendous case of trying to use God. Though it didn't have any any semblance of anger or or irritation on the front, it just had resignation written all over it. I give up. He won't do it. Men and women. Maybe my questions don't help you at all, but I plead with you, stop and think. We'll have a few moments at the end of the service to stop and think. But be asking him now, give thought to it during the week, where, not do, where are you inclined to make God useful to your cause? He will not cooperate with that, which is a very good thing, is a very good thing, because he will, what that's saying is that he will not feed you, but he will father you, which is what you really need. The Lord will not cooperate when people try to use Him. He said no to Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and Israel, and He will not be a genie in a bottle God for you. He resists that. And secondly, He acts to drive it out. This is the second point. God will act to remove this idolatry from among His people. We are inclined this way and He will act to remove it. And it, it is idolatry. It is a breaking of the first commandment a setting up of another God before Him. Chiefly myself. All the things that I pursue. And He will act to remove that. He's been saying for several chapters now He's going to remove Eli's house. And He does that There's more here, obviously, about the battle, and he says no to them. They they ask him, sort of, why has the Lord done this? Why has he afflicted us in the first battle? And if they'd stopped and thought for a minute and asked the word of God, they would have found an answer. Leviticus 26, verse 17, for instance, in a section, that talks about how God disciplines his people to, sh- to turn them back towards keeping the covenant. Leviticus 26:17 says, I will set my face against you if you break the covenant and turn away from me and set up other gods in front of me. I will turn my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. That's military defeat he's talking about. Deuteronomy 28 says the same thing being even more explicit. It says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated. He ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? There's the answer. Because we have been unfaithful to him and have put some other God before him. And so he is afflicting us just like he said he would. They don't think that through and instead heighten the problem by summoning the ark. So instead of turning back, they go deeper into it. And so he brings about even greater affliction, 30,000 dead, national humiliation, the ark taken away, which again matches what that passage said he would do. Read through that section of Leviticus. If they turn away, I will do this. If they do not turn back, it will get worse. If they do not turn, it will get worse. It will get worse. It will get worse. Ending with... The separation of God from His people. Exile. The final straw. All of it very hard and painful and grievous. Affliction from God. But it must also be seen for the good that it is. Because what is the goal of God? to turn them off of the path of enslavement and death back to the path of life it is a good goal he aims to deliver them yes it's painful all of discipline is painful for a while but it's good for us in the end and we should see God's grace in it how he afflicts people it is a gracious thing here but there is some additional component that we need to consider and in my mind, this is, what, this is what lights the passage up. God in this passage afflicts Hophni and Phineas for sure. God in this passage afflicts Israel, for sure. Seeing their attempt to use him, he afflicts these men, he afflicts this people. And God afflicts Himself. And takes on Himself, in fact, the greatest blow. Wrapped up in the assumption, Israel's assumption, as to why this will be a victory is that God surely will not tolerate His name to be dishonored. Surely God will not allow Himself to be dragged through the mud. So He will win. He will serve us. And God says, No, I am so concerned to drive out of you that attitude that I will take upon myself the humiliation and the shame. They pull him down out of the sanctuary, down to the place of their own fight, their own battle, and they say, now serve us. And this then mighty Lord of hosts on the next day is meek and silent and like a sheep led to slaughter, suffers himself to be taken off into exile. Carted off as a prisoner of war. With the Philistines shouting, he struck the Egyptians, but he could not save himself. Of course he could have saved himself. Of course he could have called down from heaven a host of angels. And the battle would have gone completely differently. Philistines defeated. His own honor protected. And unfortunately his people, left in and reinforced in their killing, their fatal idolatry. And he loves them enough to not cooperate. Have you ever been a parent in Target with a two-year-old that loses it? And you've got a cart full of groceries. You're half done, and the kid is totally done. And you're faced with the choice right there: Do I go through the the embarrassment of trying to discipline this kid here, and that not working? Do I go through the embarrassment of saying to the clerk? Here's the cart with the groceries. I can't buy them right now because I've got to take Junior home and deal with this. Or do I just buy him the toy that he wants and get on with it? You ever been there? It is strongly tempting to just buy the toy. And it is wrong. You know it. You know it. You know you just got used even if it wasn't conscious, you just got used. But because you didn't want to endure the shame, the humiliation, to go through all the trouble of not getting the groceries done, have to come back later, and the embarrassment of giving them to the clerk while the screaming junior is... You didn't want to go through all that. I'll just give you what you want, and I'll, I'll add another brick onto your growing tower of the worlds about me and getting my agenda fed. I'll just feed that because, frankly, I'm more concerned about myself here. Graciously thank God he will not cooperate. And graciously thank God he is willing to in the short term endure all the shame and all the scorn, all of the mocking and to hang upon a cross naked dead that he might deliver you from your tendency to make him useful. Thank God for his grace. He is strongly inclined to father you, to shepherd you, to work out of you what was sown into you at the very beginning in your father and mother, Adam and Eve. That involves him often saying no. That involves him often at least saying, not yet. The question is, do you believe him or not? Do you trust him or not? Because when he says no, you right away have to interpret that. And there are a host of voices telling you, he's evil, run. But there is another word telling you he is good, stay, stay under, and be fathered. They, those voices, have the evidence of a growling stomach and a watering mouth. He has another piece of evidence. Who is he? And what is He like towards you? Let's ask that question. Let's pull it out of the whispered realm and lay it on the table. Who is He? And what is He like towards you, Christian? He is the lover of your soul. The only lover of your soul. The only being who seeks to do you good. The only one. The only one who knows what good actually is for you. And He has stepped into your existence. He stepped into this world. He has come down out of heaven to endure the shame and the scorn of the cross to liberate you from this bondage and to teach you then to walk in the freedom. That's who he is. That's what he is towards you. Do you believe it? Yes or no? I find it helpful sometimes to write that on a piece of paper, yes or no, and hold my pencil and say, I cannot circle the no. You see what that's doing? It's forcing me to decide who will I trust as the pencil hangs in the air Do I trust Him, yes or no? Or do I trust my own eyes, my own tongue, my own heart, the voices around me? Do I trust them or do I trust Him? Yes, no, which one? That's the question to you. In whom do you trust? Our money says one thing, but that's not the American value, actually. In God we trust. No, it isn't. No, we don't. In whom do you trust? In Christ, God has taken upon Himself the shame and the suffering and the humiliation of death on a cross, under a curse, enduring the exile that should have been yours. All so as to free you. In whom do you trust? My hope is that God will work through your heart and your mind and will show you the places in which you are inclined to make Him useful to you. And you will repent of that, seeing Him as more than useful, but instead as good and gracious and loving. And you will trust Him and embrace Him, follow Him, and obey Him in everything that He commands. He is the God who is for you. A suffering servant on your behalf. That He might come your fa- become your Father, your Lord, and your Teacher. So believe Him. He is at work to work that out of you. Believe Him. Now let me pray, and then I'll we'll have a few minutes for you to, to think to think it through and to make a decision about it. Yes or no. Let me pray. Father, would you show us, because you have to show us where we are living lives on our agenda with you as aid to it. Show that, reveal it, bring conviction, bring repentance, and cement in your people trust of you. Cement in your people an earnest conviction that you are right, that what you do is good. Submission to you rather than a lording over you. That's the place we need to be. That's the place where we are blessed. And Lord, we all say that and we all affirm it, but would you cement it in us as a conviction? Grow in your people belief, please. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for enduring the shame and the scorn for our good And ultimately then for your great and everlasting honor and glory and praise. You are good. Thank you. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.